You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you're not an authorised financial advisor, it's important you understand the content of this podcast may be difficult to follow, as it assumes you have the necessary training, qualifications and experience to understand the concepts discussed as well as the technical language used. If you still decide to listen, please understand the information contained in this recording is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Any scenarios considered during this podcast are purely hypothetical and for illustrated purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. When an SMSF client decides to move overseas, a critical consideration is the potential impact that could have on their fund's complying status. My name is Craig Day, the head of the First Tech team, and here to discuss a critical part of the residency test, being the central management and control test, is Tim Sanderson, one of my senior technical services managers. G'day, Tim. Hi, Craig. How are you? I am pretty good, actually. Today, not too bad at all. You know, we're all out of lockdown. Had my vaccine, get to go to the pub. All Things are getting better. Good. <laughs> Things are getting better. Now, um, clients moving overseas, right? And we've got, you know, and that could be for lots of different reasons. And they've got a self-managed super fund. So as I said in the intro, a really critical consideration for them is the potential impact that that will have on their fund's residency status. So, but why? What, <laughs> why do we care? Yeah, so the main, the, the main thing is that in order to be a complying super fund, uh, an SMSF has to be an Australian superannuation fund at all times. Um, in other words, meet the residency requirements. And so meeting that central management and control test, which we'll talk about at all times, is really important. Otherwise, the fund becomes non-complying. And I suppose an important thing to think about here, we're just looking at one of the three tests. So there's three tests that you look at when you're trying to determine um, your Australian super fund status. So one of those is whether the fund was established in Australia or if it holds assets assets here. Another one is the active member test, which we actually have a, a federal budget proposal to abolish. So it may well be the most important test because generally, you know, the fund will be established in Australia or at least you hold an asset here. So the critical test going forward is going to be the central management control test, assuming that that budget proposal gets up. Now, okay, Tim, saying that, what does the central management control test require? So the the central management control test, what it, what it says is that the fund's central management and control needs to be uh, exercised ordinarily in Australia. So the, the, yeah, the central management control needs to be ordinarily located in Australia. Okay. Now there's a there's an ATO ruling on this, isn't there? Uh, there is um, tax ruling two thousand and eight slash nine, I think, which which outlines the ATO's view on all of the tests that are um, that are required under the Australian Super Fund definition. Okay. And I think from going back and reading that, a lot of the concepts that we draw on around central management control actually come from the the case law around where a company is located. Um, and so a lot of the concepts that we're going to talk about here through central management control pretty much come from those decisions about where, where actually is a company resident, because a company is, you know, it's kind of an entity that's not a person. Yeah. Um, so a lot of those concepts are drawn from there. So, okay, so what is central management control? 
So the ATO's said that this is really looking at it's the strategic and high-level decision-making processes and activities of the fund. So in the mm-hmm. context of an SMSF, that could be things like formulating the investment strategy or reviewing and updating that, um, monitoring and reviewing the performance of the fund and its investments, um, mm-hmm. strategies to do with reserves, and determining how assets of the fund are going to be used to fund members' benefits. Um, and that's in contrast to what you'd, I guess, refer to as day-to-day admin activities. So things like just accepting contributions, um, the, the process of investing the fund's assets, preserving, paying or rolling over members' benefits and other day-to-day admin functions, um, they themselves wouldn't be part of that, that central management and control function. Okay, so I, I can't, as a trustee, move overseas, um, do all that high-level strategic decision-making overseas, but I've got an administrator located in Australia that does all the day-to-day admin for me and therefore try and claim that, oh, no, no, I've still satisfied the central management control because all of those day-to-day administration operations kind of activities are still being conducted in Australia, that's not going to cut it. No. They're going to look at those where you're actually holding your trustee meetings to, to decide those really key decisions, strategic decisions for the fund. Absolutely. Okay. Now, okay, so we now know what central management control is. Where is it located? Okay, so the ATO says um, the location will be whether if the trustees are exercising that central management and control, the um, functions that we talked about, it will, it will be where those trustees meet um, and not necessarily where they live. So you could have um, trustees living overseas, for example, um, but coming back to Australia periodically and exercising or making those decisions while they're in Australia. In that situation, it's, it's where those meetings are happening, which would be in Australia, which is, is going to be the location of, of the central management and control. Yeah, I remember, and this is a while ago now, an advisor called me up one day and they had a client that was an airline pilot that had just picked up a role. I think they were going to be flying for a Japanese airline. And he was going to be living and operating out of uh, Tokyo or wherever. Um, and his wife was going to stay in Australia and he was going to spend nine to ten months a year living in Japan and flying around the world but as part of that his terms of conditions is he was going to be able to fly back to Australia once a month for a weekend or something like that Um, and so the question was well if we just make sure we conduct all our trustee meetings when he's back here in Australia is is that okay does that satisfy the central management control test and what you're saying is and what I told the advisor is yes as long as you're holding those trustee meetings in Australia and you're physically present here, it doesn't matter where you actually live. Now, in most circumstances, you know, you're going to have your trustee meetings in the same location as where you're actually living, um, but not always. You can have people that do regularly return to Australia as long as you're holding your trustee meetings uh, when they're back here in Australia, that's going to be fine. Yeah, look, the only risk in that sort of situation would be, you know, if you're overseas and an urgent trustee decision is required that mm-hmm. would involve yep. exercising the central management control there could be a risk there but yeah other than that if as long as you're coming back to australia to, to have those meetings then then everything's okay what if i'm trying to let's say i've got everyone living overseas uh and they're holding meetings electronically um 
and you're arguing that maybe the server, the Zoom server, I don't think it probably is located in Australia, but, but you know, the server that you're running your, your Zoom meeting or your teleconference or, your, you know, the teleconference that's hosted via Telstra, um, can you try and argue that the technology is located in Australia, everyone else is sitting overseas, so does that mean the trustee meeting's being held in Australia? No, so the, the ATO is on to that one. So they say it, when you're doing it by... Um, phone or video or presumably Zoom as well more these days. Um, it's going to be where those people who are involved in that central management and control exercising where they are at that point. Um, and so that, that probably leads on to, well, obviously if all of those people were overseas while they're having that Zoom call, for example, then that's a problem. But you might have situations where some of them are in Australia and some of them are overseas while that's happening. Mm-hmm. Yep, I think that's more likely, really. Yep. I think that that example out of that ruling pretty much comes straight out of, um, uh, you know, a company kind of where is a company located when the directors are all actually, yep. you know, physically overseas, but the teleconferencing the technology and the service that they're engaging to help the company run its, its directors' meetings is located in Australia. So they're just saying, no, it's got nothing to do yep. with the technology. It's where the directors, corporate trustee directors or where the individual trustees are physically located when they're actually participating in that key strategic decision making. Yeah, and so what the ATO has said in relation to that, where you have some overseas and some in Australia and you're exercising it electronically, um, they accept that as long as if everyone's participating fully and at least 50% of those trustees or, or directors are in Australia when that happens, then it, the ATO accepts that the central management and control will be in Australia. Yeah, so okay. So, so thinking about the vast majority of funds being two member funds, yep. so as long as you've got one of those members located in Australia and they're participating in the trustee decision-making, um, then you're okay. And I suppose these days the good old six-member fund, as long as you've got three of the trustees located in Australia and three overseas, then that fund would still be have its central management control ordinarily located in Australia. So long as you know you're probably holding your Zoom trustee meeting, and that everyone participates. But if it's just the trustees that are located overseas, yep. Well, then that decision is being made overseas. That central management control is being exercised overseas. Um, but is that necessarily you know a problem? Because in the terms of the test, it talks about ordinarily. So what does that mean? Yeah, so that doesn't necessarily mean that the central management control must at all times in all situations be in Australia. It says, as you mentioned, ordinarily in Australia. And, and the ATO says there, well, that, that really refers to being usually or normally exercised in Australia. Mm-hmm. And so that, that kind of leads on to the fact that um, the central management control could be uh, temporarily outside Australia, for example, with a, where a member's uh, a trustee is temporarily absent from Australia. Um, and as long as that's a temporary absence, then that's not going to prevent the fund's central management and control from, being, from meeting that ordinarily in Australia requirement. But it does have to be a temporary absence. Right. Well, the million-dollar question then is what makes my absence temporary? Because I could say, oh, I intended it to be temporary. <laughs> what are they actually going to look at? Yeah, very good question. So the, um, what the ATO says in relation to this is that for an absence to be temporary, and it does say it really needs to be looked at on a case-by-case basis, um, but it needs to be a, um, 
they need to be absent from Australia for a relatively short period. And that absence really has to be, or the duration needs to be defined in advance or related to fulfilling, fulfilling a specific passing purpose. So for example, let's say a, a secondment from work for six months determined in advance, um, that, that could look very much like a, a temporary absence. Yeah, at the end of six months, you're coming back. Yeah. Um, so you can go overseas. You don't have to worry about returning to Australia to hold your trustee meetings. You can do it overseas because you've established your central management control in Australia um, and then you're exercising it overseas, but it's normally or usually exercised in Australia and the fact that you're doing temporarily outside of Australia doesn't cause you a problem. Um, well, that's good, but what that probably says to me is that there's an element of greyness when when the government says you know what did they say a relatively short period so yes <laughs> like for me short period is like you know two hours right for other people short period could be 10 years so um the, given that and it's subject to you know interpretation the government's given us a, a safe harbor here haven't they just to clarify any or make it easy for people to know where the boundaries are. That's right. So they provided a two-year safe harbour to really allow temporary absences that are going to be um, two years or less um, to satisfy that requirement of the central management control um, still being ordinarily in Australia. It, it, it is important to note, though, still has to be a temporary absence in that time. So if someone's going overseas and it's, it's more than a temporary absence, then... Um, you don't get that two-year grace period. You mean more than temporary being permanent? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's the really important thing for me that when I when I chat to advisors, it's like, you're okay, you've got this two-year window. Um, come back within the two years, you're going to be fine. But remember, you don't get the two years at all if the intention here is to move away. So they've sold up everything. They've taken a job overseas. It's not for a, it doesn't have an end date. It's a full-time open position. Yeah. Um, you're going to go and buy a property and it makes it look like you're moving away from Australia permanently. Then you don't get the two years. You need to think about what you're going to do with your fund now, not in two years time. Yeah. And probably just worth mentioning as well, there is a budget proposal not legislated as yet to, increase that two years to a five-year safe harbour provision. So just to provide a little bit more certainty or flexibility to, to people in that situation. So proposed from 1 July uh, next yeah. year. Yeah, and I think that's a really good uh, initiative because two years is a relatively short period of time when you're looking about relocating overseas. You know, if you're moving to Europe, pick up a job, you've got 12 and then it gets extended to 18 months, um, that will go by in a flash. Um, but what this also says to me is a couple of really interesting things. Like if you take it out to five years, that's great. But what if in that two-year period or the five-year period, if that gets legislated, you decide that your temporary absence is now going to be permanent? Like I've taken up this secondment in London. The London office really love what I'm doing. And then they say, Craig, a full-time position has come available. We'll sponsor you for permanent residency in the UK do you want to take the job up? And I say, you betcha I do. What happens there? Yeah, so, so the ATO is likely to say there, well, during that period where you intended your absence to be temporary, then that's fine up until the point where your intention changed. And from the time that your intention changes, then really that, that's no longer a temporary absence and the central management and control would likely be outside Australia from that point. 
Well, you'd, you'd have to exercise it back in Australia. Yeah. So that would be a really big warning to someone to say, okay, you can go overseas, you've got this two-year safe harbour, and yes, potentially some emergency situation will come up where you have to exercise central management control, or you just decide... <laughs> sorry about my dog. Um, you decide to... <laughs> no, he normally does this when I'm talking Social Security, so not so much self-managed super funds. I thought he liked self-managed super funds, but anyway. Um, so in that situation, if I can regather my thoughts um, and think about, okay, so you've you've now exercised your central management control when it's temporarily overseas, and that's going to be fine. But as, as soon as you decide to permanently stay... Um, then it all changes, right? Yeah, you'd so you'd actually have to start coming back to Australia to exercise it, otherwise, to make, that to make any decision can be failed. And you might say, "Well, I'll come back to Australia once every, you know, at Christmas every year to see the, you know, to see the olds and my brother and sister and all that sort of stuff." But if some sort of event comes up and you need to urgently make a decision, such as a COVID nineteen pandemic, and you need to sell everything to stop the losses or whatever, right? You're reviewing your investment strategy because of some sort of macroeconomic event. As soon as you do that, that could cause you real problems. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So be aware of, be careful of that two-year safe harbour. And I'd just be really warning clients going overseas. Yes, it's there. But if you decide to stay permanently, then everything changes. I suppose also on the flip side of that, um, you've still got this temporary absence thing. So if what if I took up a contract that had a end point of two and a half years. Yeah, so the, the ATO has confirmed that um, it is possible to have uh, temporary absences that are longer than that two-year period. So you don't have to rely on that safe harbour, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, the longer an absence is, um, the less likely it is to be considered a temporary absence. Yeah, the, the more evidence, yeah. objective, hard facts you're going to have to have because remember, at the end of the day, it's your, the compliance of your fund that is up at risk here and the ATO don't have any discretion on this one. If you're considered to be a non-resident fund, then you're non-complying. We'll talk about what that means in a moment, yep. but it's it's not a game to play with, right? Um, and so in that situation, if you are going to be away longer than two years and you're arguing temporary, you've got to have some good evidence to back you up, right? And then I suppose with thinking about that, if we get the five-year rule come in, oh God, that would even say even more strongly that if you're trying to argue that being away for six or seven years is only a temporary absence, you'd want to have some really, really strong evidence to support that your absence is only temporary if you're trying to exercise central management control beyond that five-year safe harbour if we do, in fact, get it. Okay. Um, Now, moving on, uh, COVID. Obviously, you know, if I've been stuck overseas and can't get back to Australia, does that mean, and I've gone over my two years, um, the government's given us some concessions here, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, normally you would be at risk of failing the... um the central management and control test in that situation. But the, the government's basically said during the COVID period um, for 2019, 20, 2021, and they've now extended it to 21, 22, that basically if you're otherwise going to meet the residency requirements, but you are stranded overseas, you're unable to get back to Australia, um, then in the absence of really any other change in your situation regarding the fund's residency, um, the ATO is not going to apply compliance resources to work out if you're a resident or non-resident fund. Right. But that's only when you're impacted by COVID. So if you could get back, I mean, you just decided to stay away, 
yeah, I don't then that, don't think it'd apply yeah. in that situation. Yeah. 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 Okay. Now we've talked about you know the big bogeyman of becoming a non-complying fund. What's the impact of that? Yeah. Well, it's bad news. So um, the, the first thing is your you become a non-complying fund for tax purposes, and your tax rate changes from fifteen percent to forty-five percent. Um, so that's bad. Um, so the income from your the year that you're non-complying, you're paying forty-five percent tax rather than fifteen percent tax. But there's an additional um, potentially much worse problem in your first year of non-compliance where you have an additional amount included in your assessable income taxed at 45%, which really seeks to take away all of the previous tax concessions you've had access to. Um, yeah. and it, it can mean losing almost half your fund in tax in that first year. Yeah. So it can be very bad news. What do they add up? They add up all the taxable component in the fund, don't they? Um, and, and assess that at 45%. Yeah, that's basically the way the way it would work. So, yeah. And, yeah. and we were discussing this the other day because I think um, someone on the team was saying, "Oh, well, why wouldn't you just wind your fund up and get it, get all the assets out, and then at the end of the year, there's nothing for them to tax?" And I said, uh, "One goes <laughs> one step ahead of you here because you don't look at the value of the fund." when it became non-complying or even at the end of the year, you look at the value of the fund immediately before the financial year in which it became non-complying. So, you know, you, you might have a million dollars there that's going to be taxed at 45% and then you strip all of that out and roll it over to a large APRA-regulated fund and go, oh, nothing to tax here. And they'll simply say, no, it's not the zero. I mean, it's, it's the million dollars that was there immediately before the start of the year in which you became non-complying. So I'll have my $450,000 tax, please. And if the fund's got no assets left because it's been wound up, you know what the ATO is going to do then is they're just going to turn around and levy that liability on the trustees individually. So Absolutely. it is not a game to play with. Okay. Um, now, if we want to try and avoid this, I've got a client that's, overseas or potentially even thinking about going overseas well if you think about going overseas the thing that there to me would be don't set up a self-managed super fund would be a way to avoid this problem but if they're they've got a self-managed super fund already they're thinking about going overseas or they are going to go overseas how do we manage this risk yeah so there's a there's a few options firstly um the uh an option would be to appoint um attorneys under enduring powers of attorney to um, be appointed as trustees or directors in place of the members. Um, normally, mm -hmm. all members have to be trustees and all trustees have to be members, but one exception is that you can have your enduring power of attorney um, be trustee instead of you. Um, and as long as those attorneys are in Australia being trustees and exercising the central management and control of the fund, that can let the members be overseas um, and the funds still um, still meet that test. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple of considerations here. Um, those attorneys, you know, they're not just acting as an attorney for the member, they're actually becoming trustees in their own right. So they're subject to all of the requirements and uh, civil and criminal penalties for any breaches. Mm -hmm. um, also, they're the ones making the decisions. So are they going to be making decisions that the members always 100% agree with? Um, they're not able to be remunerated at all. So, you know, what's the incentive for them to them to do that? Um, when you think about it, here, yeah. can you take over control of my fund, make all the decisions, <laughs> spend all of this time, take on all of the risk of being, you know, penalised personally? 
Um, and what do I get for it? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, who would really want to do that? I, I, I imagine family and friends do. Uh, I suppose another key consideration for me is because they need to be the ones making the decision, right? You can't call them up from London and tell them what to do. No, they're the ones making the decision. And are they capable of making those decisions? Absolutely, yeah. And probably the only other point there to make would be it, it does have to be an enduring power of attorney, which is um, current and complies with relevant state um, requirements. So standard powers of attorney isn't going to cut it and expired enduring power of attorney wouldn't cut it either. Um, another, any other alternatives? Yeah, so probably converting to a small APRA fund um, would be mm. another option. Um, so... Like SMSS, they can have no more than six members, but instead of members being trustees, uh, et cetera, they have a, an independent um, uh, independent trustee to run the fund. So you won't have that central management and control issue when that independent trustee is appointed. Some of the, some of the issues with a small APRA fund or considerations would be the increased cost of, having, of paying that trustee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there is still some... Uh, investment control that can be exercised by members in a small APRA fund, but there may be limits imposed compared to an SMSF. And small APRA fund trustees, that independent trustee, they might um, refuse to hold certain investments that might be possible in an SMSF. So um, investments in private companies or unit trusts, for example. Yeah, they also get a bit gun shy of limited recourse borrowing arrangements. Yes. So if you've got one of those sitting there, I do know I've I've had a chat to some of the the people that work for you know the, the other techos in the industry that work for these organisations and and what they said to me was oh we we will take on a limited recourse borrowing arrangement, um, but what they said is that the the LVRs these days where our trustee is really uncomfortable with so um, they would say that if they saw a farm with let's say a 70% LVR loan to value ratio they might say well sorry we'll take it but only if you pay it down to a 50% loan to value ratio otherwise you're going to have to sell the property for us to take that on right so adjustments um, may be required yeah, yeah yeah so that you know, large amount of capital going to pay off the loans yeah. can you afford that um, and, and probably, right. probably winding up the SMSF is another consideration as well if if members are going to be going overseas more than temporarily. Yeah, actually, you know, I think, you know, the, the idea of me appointing my brother as an enduring power of attorney, for example, that doesn't fill me with confidence. Not that there's anything wrong with my brother, but uh, uh, he's, I would say he's the savviest financial manager in the world, um, just because he's got no experience in it. Um, and so, well, do I want to do that? No, not really. Um, do I want to appoint a small APRA fund trustee? Well, it could be expensive. I don't have any control. I might have a private company, a trust unit, something like that in there. Um, let's maybe wind up and go back to a, a, a large APRA fund. But the issue with doing that, though, is that when I go and sell all my assets or my transfer my assets over to something like a, a super wrap, that's going to be a CGT trigger, right? So there's going to be a cost incurred in doing that in the form of a CGT liability, potentially, if I'm still in the accumulation phase. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of things to consider when you're thinking about going overseas. Um, I think that pretty much wraps it up. Is there anything else we need to chat about? No, I think I think that's it. Just, just to point out as well, um, we've just talked about, as we mentioned before, this is only one of the tests of an Australian fund. So um, for information about the other tests, particularly the active member test, we've got information in our SMSF guide if people are, are interested. Yeah, and uh, 
we should have mentioned right up front, we also have an article in this month's strategic update um, that looks at the central management control test. So if there's anything you've heard here and you want to dig into a little bit more, jump on to the First Tech website and download the article. All right, Tim, thanks for that. No problem. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, everyone. Postscript. Subsequent to recording this podcast, First Tech has become aware that where an SMSF fails the Australian Superfund definition, the ATO may be prepared to allow the fund to be wound up or converted to a small APRA fund without first issuing a notice of non-compliance. In these situations, we'd strongly recommend the trustees contact the ATO. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please remember, these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you're not an authorised financial advisor, you need to remember that any scenarios considered during this podcast were for purely hypothetical and illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. And finally, you should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decision and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be reliable and accurate, no person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited or Commonwealth Bank Group of Companies, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.